Starting Place family, welcome to the first episode of our third season. Now, I want to do something new this season. After today, I'm going to start each episode by doing some Q&A, answering a question that one of you all submit. So if you have a question about theology, the Bible, spiritual formation, or just fun facts about Elizabeth, send them my way by email or on Instagram. Again, you can send them my way by email or Instagram, and you can check the show notes for more information on how to do that. Okay. Our topic for this season is going to be theology, and specifically the doctrine of God. We're going to spend the entire season unpacking the depths of the character and nature of our God. Okay, maybe not all the depths, but we are going to help you meditate on the truth about who our God is. But before we jump into the nitty gritty, though, I do want to provide a theological disclosure of sorts. Like I like to think of Christianity as one big house with different rooms that refer to different denominations or traditions like Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal, Presbyterian or Lutheran. As you are listening to this podcast, I want to make sure you know what room or rooms I tend to hang out in. This will help you have some expectations for what I will share this season or give you some context. If you hear me say something that sounds different than what your pastor might say on Sunday, or if I don't talk about something in the way you would have expected me to. Now, for most of y'all, you might not care. You're like, Elizabeth, I hang out in the same rooms you do. But I do think as someone who is inviting you to learn from me, I need to share who or what has shaped my ideas about God. So this season, what you will hear me talk about comes from an evangelical, Baptist, Reformed, and Bible fellowship traditions. And so those rooms are kind of connected, but again, it's evangelical, Baptist, Reformed, and Bible fellowship. And so this is going to be the source of the voices or resources I recommend to you as well. Now, here's a free nugget. Be in the habit of figuring out people's theological roots. It will help you have better expectations for the information they are sharing with you. All right. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. Now, the word theology is a combination of two Greek words, theos and lagos, which means words or thoughts about God. So theology in its simplest form are human thoughts about God or our attempts to understand God. And since we all have thoughts about God, in some sense, all of us are theologians. Author Keith Johnson puts it this way. We practice theology whenever we think or speak about God. We are doing theology when we pray, worship, read scripture, teach others about the faith, and make decisions about how to live in a right relationship to God. In this sense, every Christian practices theology every day. I love this quote because it helps me see that my actions are rooted in my beliefs about God. What I believe about his character and his nature affect how I live, how I worship, how I pray, and how I treat other people. So the issue isn't whether you are a theologian. You are. The issue is how good of a theologian are you? And what I mean by that is how closely do your ideas about God align with the truth of how he has revealed himself to us through scripture? Because what we believe about God affects how we view ourselves and our understanding of what it looks like to love our neighbor and live in God's world. When I meet people for the first time, there is always one dead giveaway that they have talked to someone I know about me before they meet me. And it's when they call me Liz. Now, being called Liz doesn't offend me. A lot of my family and friends call me by that name. But I never refer to myself as that. I always introduce myself as Elizabeth. I'm going to say, hey, girl, I'm Elizabeth. I like your shoes. They're cute. That's me. 
So at that first meeting, if someone calls me Liz, I know they got their information about me from somebody else. They got it from another source. Here's the reason I tell you that story. When it comes to our understanding about God, we need to get that information from God himself, specifically the information he has revealed to us in scripture. The problem we have to overcome or watch out for is how we can internalize false information about God from other sources. For example, you might have had a very judgmental parent or family member. So every time you messed up, they showered you with shame and guilt, made you feel like you could never measure up or that you weren't valuable unless you were perfect. So when you mess up or sin in your relationship with God, you feel like he is going to do the same thing to you, dumping shame and guilt on you, giving you the silent treatment, withholding love from you until you meet this artificial standard of perfection. But in Exodus 34, God tells us that he is slow to anger, gracious and abounding in love. In Romans 8, he tells us that nothing can separate us from his love. And in Hebrews 12, he tells us that even if he gives us consequences, it's because he loves us and knows we need a stronger reminder that the best place for us to be is in a life obedient to him. Or another false idea we can internalize is that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. Like the God of the Old Testament is mean, but the God of the New Testament, uh, he's nice and loving. But this leads us to hang out more in the New Testament and distance ourselves from God's work in the Old Testament. But Malachi 3 and Hebrews 13 both tell us that God is the same, both yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. So the God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament, they're the same. And for those of us who love the New Testament more, please know that you cannot fully understand the New Testament without reading the Old Testament, amongst many other reasons. If you do this, it's like we pick up our favorite book and start reading in the middle. So our understanding will be incomplete because we need to see God's work through the Old Testament with Israel in order to understand the grace and love we have received through Christ. Well, here's one more false idea we internalize. We love warm and fuzzy Jesus. We focus on his closeness, niceness, or his friendship, but we do not see him as an authority in our lives who is the determining factor for how we live. We become too comfortable with Jesus, asking him to bless us all the time but live in obedience to him when it's only convenient for us. When we have wrong ideas about God, that becomes the lens through which we see the world. And that lens can get real foggy. For us as believers, the primary place we come to know God is through what he has revealed to us about himself in scripture. It becomes the standard we measure against everything else. So our journey to learn about God will begin with what he has told us about himself. And this season, we're gonna cover several attributes but in this first episode, we are going to start with the one that serves as a foundation for every other one, the Trinity. God is triune means that he is one God who exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity forms the foundation of our understanding of God, and from it comes all the other attributes that we will go through this season. Our understanding of God's love, his omnipotence, his grace, his holiness, they all come from our understanding of God being triune. Now, since this topic is so important, I wanted to invite a guest who I knew could help teach us what it means for God to be both three and one. So I asked my friend, JT English, to join us and help provide some clarity for this foundational topic. And this episode is going to feel a little bit more instructional, so feel free to pause and write down your notes. As always, we'll have all the things linked in the show notes for you as well. To tell you a little bit about JT, 
He is the lead pastor of Storyline Fellowship in Arveda, Colorado, and author of Deep Discipleship, How the Church Can Make Whole Disciples of Jesus, and You Are a Theologian, An Invitation to Know and Love God Well, which he co-authored with Jen Wilkin. He also has a PhD in systematic theology, is a co-founder of Training the Church, and a co-host of the Knowing Faith podcast. Y'all have learned so much from JT over the years, and I'm excited to share some of that goodness with you. Let's jump in. So what y'all need to know is JT used to be my boss. <laughs> and uh, JT had an interesting form of professional development. <laughs> JT would send me these emails. And, and I remember he would say, hey, I want you to read this article. JT is the nicest person. And he would say, I need you to read this article. And I'm going to come to your office and we're just going to talk about it. Cool, talk, we're going to discuss. <laughs> and by discuss, what JT meant is I need you to defend <laughs> your position on this article with like 20 minutes preparation. And if winning an argument was based upon who worked the hardest, <laughs> I would say that I won. Now, There's JT no might doubt. have different opinions, but, yeah. you know, I had a valiant effort for those conversations. Do you remember that, JT? I've never had an argument with you that I won. <laughs> I'm well I'm well aware of this, you okay. know. One of the interesting things of coming from the academy to the church is like, I always just believe, like, let's just talk about ideas. Let's just talk about ideas. And apparently there's like a social element that I was missing of like, hey, chill out, dude, that uh, that I'm slowly learning. So you were, a, you were a gracious conversation partner. It was actually fun for me uh, because what I will say is part of my development over the years has been talking to folks who don't agree with me. And so mm. we can send ourselves with people who it's an echo chamber. And so it was like, oh, okay, I need to get my weight up in this area. So it was mm. fun. Lots of good memories from the village, but we're not here to go down memory lane. We're here to talk about the Trinity. Let's do it. And so JT, I have learned a lot from you and both in your writing and just in person, just about this topic. You wrote your dissertation on this. Am I correct? Yeah, I did. Okay. So like I said, y'all, nobody better to talk about the Trinity than JT English. Mm. I want to start us with this question, uh, because when I think about the Trinity, when I think about the sermons I've heard on Sundays over the years, when I think about the Sunday school lessons I've sat underneath, I haven't heard too many on the topic of the Trinity. Right. And so why do you think it is a topic that is so seldom taught or celebrated within Christian circles today? Yeah, I think there's probably two reasons. And I would even imagine as we kind of introduce this topic, like maybe somebody just popped onto the podcast and they're they're already struggling with one of these two barriers. Like, why would we do a podcast on this for these two reasons? First, we've been told that it's too complex to understand. You know, the first thing we're told is, uh, the Trinity is a mystery, uh, therefore you're never going to get it. So don't even bother. And we'll just kind of like skate past it and try to get something that might be a little bit more practical. So the first is, you know, it's too complex. Another one is not only is it complex, we can think of it as unimportant. Like we haven't made, as soon as, we, as soon as maybe we begin to understand it, people haven't made the connection to, so how does this apply to me on Monday morning, trying to be a follower of Jesus. What does it, what does it matter that God is a Trinity as a dad or as a mom or as a brother, or as a sister, or as a coworker and colleague? So it, it can be the complexity that can be daunting, but not just the complexity. Once we begin to get it, it, we haven't made the connection to the Christian life. So I don't think we've helped Christians understand there's really, really huge value in understanding this because it has a payoff for our everyday living as followers of Jesus. Yeah. 
you know, those two have have struggled with in my own walk with the Lord and really the complexity. I think that because when it's something complex, you don't see it uh, connect to your life. It is easy for us to swipe it to the side and to do the things that don't require as much friction. I think mm-hmm. in our learning process, uh, because when it comes to our spiritual growth journey, to me, there is this reminder that is an educational process, which means I'm learning, which means this learning process is going to have some level of difficulty to it. Yeah. But because it's difficult doesn't mean I shouldn't apply myself to it. And sometimes when I think about motivation for pressing into these hard places, what I think about is, Elizabeth, this is what you will lose out on mm-hmm. if you don't learn about this and learning that's transformational, not just head knowledge, but that comes out in the way we live our lives. And so, JT, when it comes to the Trinity, what do we lose out on when we don't dig deep into this topic? Yeah, I mean, it's it's immeasurable what we lose out on. And I think we'll probably kind of hit on some of these themes throughout the course of the podcast. But what you primarily lose out on is God. Like when we say Trinity, that's a substitute for God. God is Trinity. God doesn't have an attribute, which I know you're talking about this season, that is Trinitarianism. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And so one of the things you were just mentioning about learning that can be hard about the Trinity is is none of us are born with a conception of Trinitarianism as our understanding of God. We all have a conception of who God is, whether we don't believe in Him or we believe in one God or in some cultures, many gods, like we have conceptions of the divine. None of them are naturally Trinity. That means there's a lot of unlearning we have to do. Like learning about the Trinity isn't just adding information to our neutral minds. It's actually unlearning things from false conceptions of who God is and putting in true conceptions of who God is. Because this isn't like, this is not something that Christians in different traditions over the last 2,000 years, have had a huge amount of disagreement about. This is one of the things that all Christians in all times, in all places, Africa, Asia, uh, 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 Western Christianity, Eastern Christianity, have all confessed that God is Trinity. So we can get to the payoff in a second of like, what, what does it mean for my life that I might lose out on? But I would encourage you, and maybe in your own language, like let's say you're, maybe you're going to pray today, dear God, could you substitute Trinity? For this, like God, I need you. Do you mean Father, Son, and Spirit? I need you, because if, if if you don't mean that, then you have some kind of a different conception of who God is. So, what do we lose out on? We lose out on the very essence and nature of who God is and, and what He does. When I think about church history and how our understanding of our faith has progressed over time, to see the amount of attention that those have come before us in the faith have held to making sure that this belief, the boundaries of it have stood in place, the importance of it for our understanding of what it means to live the Christian life, to worship God, to be his people, uh, points me to, man, this is hugely significant. Mm -hmm. And that I would honor both their work, but ultimately who they're pointing to by leaning into it because it's easy for us to pick up the pieces that we really like uh, Mm -hmm. and we'll get to this, but the danger of having an insufficient or incomplete view of God or having a view that's not strong enough to combat the other messages we have in culture. Because what I, what I believe is that we'll get messages that have elements of truth and Mm -hmm. elements that aren't true, but we don't have a strong enough view to pick out which one is which. That's right. And if, if we are people who have been saved by faith, by the grace of God through Jesus, 
then we ought to have a sufficient understanding of the one for who we live. And that to me, yeah, is Trinitarianism. So Mm -hmm. I want to kind of posture this conversation as Elizabeth is seeking to learn from Pastor JT, uh, because on the first end, I want us to talk about what Trinitarianism is, right? Right. Uh, And that's a huge topic to cover in one podcast episode, but to really give us a, a fly overview of some of these key components and the, and the working definition we want to give is one God who exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we open up the beginning of scripture, we see God declare himself as one. So this aspect of God being one comes from the very beginning of our Bibles. JT, why is this such an integral part of our understanding of God when we think about the people of God yeah. who were reading Genesis 1-1. Yeah, and, and Genesis 1-1, and you think about whether it's the creation account or this creation account of God's people being made God's people in the, the liberation in Exodus, is they're getting a whole picture, a whole kind of uh, theological framework of what it means to be the people of God as they're delivered into the land that God has given them, whether it's in Genesis 1-1, uh, and even there, the spirits hovering over the waters, or Exodus 3-14, where... Uh, God says to Moses in the burning bush, I am who I am, one of the places we root our monotheism, or uh, in the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. In a Western context, which I know not, maybe not all of your listeners are in, are in but I'm in, and, and you're currently in, like monotheism is relatively, whether you're Christian or not, is kind of the idea, What even though whether it's cultural Christianity or whether it's uh, Islam or Judaism, like monotheism is is something that's kind of normal. That is absolutely fundamentally not the case in the context of what, of what the Bible is written in. Moses is writing these first five books, the Pentateuch, to God's people, telling the story of Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's family who finds themselves in Egypt. And they're having to, to kind of remove themselves from the polytheism and the worship of a pantheon of many gods in Egypt, even including Pharaoh or the God of the sun, the God of the sky, the God of fertility, the God of rain, the God of produce. And so the Israelites for decades are are seeped in this culture of polytheism and potentially, you know, maybe beginning to look around at these other gods a little bit. You know, we do hear in Exodus 1 and 2, they're crying out to Yahweh, God, would you remember your covenant promises? God, would you come and liberate and restore us? And it is the one God in Exodus 3.14 who comes to Moses and says, you're going to be the one that helps me draw my people back to the kingdom. And this, again, it's a fundamentally different framework in almost any other society. And even moving our way into some of the New Testament language, and even in the early church, you know, the first two centuries of the church, uh, Christians are called atheists uh, by the Greco-Roman culture because they only believe in one God. They don't have a pantheon of God. So the apologists and the early Christian martyrs are basically considered uh, atheists because why would you only worship the one God? who is now known in the personal work of Jesus. So the first instinct, there's two instincts in Trinitarianism, one and three. And this first one is the oneness of God that we can't lose. And maybe one of the kind of the payoffs, the application points for us is our affections, therefore, like our lives, our loves are ordered around this one God. We don't have our affections going in a multitude of different ways to different gods, different idols, or even different things that we uh, are called to love the Lord. Definite article. 
the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, all of our strength. And so uh, it's a really important piece to kind of begin with this one God, which again is maybe culturally accepted in our modern moment, but certainly not something that would have been true in the context of, of the biblical authors and the story of God's people in scripture. Yeah. One of the things that helps to bring the Bible, I think, from black and white to color for me is that cultural and historical context. Mm -hmm. And so how fascinating it is for someone, like you said, who is used to monotheism as being normative to be transplanted into a culture where that was not normative. And to be able to trace the experiences of those people as they're trying to understand who the God is that has saved them out of Egypt, who has created them, and the significance for this God not being many, but the God being one. I think about some of the, whether it's the Roman or Greek gods, or uh, is it the Babylonian creation story? Because there are other creation narratives. Mm -hmm. And you see these gods interact, and their interactions really pale in comparison to who our God is. But the beauty that we see in the oneness of God, really, and even of how God relates to himself and Mm -hmm. how we can pull wisdom for what it means for for us to relate to God and for us to relate to one another. Uh, But a lot of beauty in that, uh, that we are able to see when we just immerse ourselves kind of in that culture and that history. So JT, when you think about the threeness, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. There's this distinctions there. Oh yeah. Can you help us understand what those distinctions are? Yeah. And and we see this playing itself out in in the writings of the New Testament and even Jesus is teaching himself because on the one hand, they're dealing with a culture of, of polytheism. I mean, in Rome, there's a literally a pantheon, which again, that's a place you go to worship the gods. And the Christians are saying, no, we worship one God. At the same time, uh, the Christians are saying, and we worship God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know who that makes pretty angry? Jewish people, right? The people who are who are saying, no, 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 God is one. We're with you on the oneness of God, but you're telling me that I'm also supposed to worship Jesus as the Messiah? I'm supposed to worship his Holy Spirit? So the Christians are really having to navigate this moment. I think of uh, Paul writes in Galatians, you know, how, are we supposed to think of Jesus as an angel or as a mediator? Because how could they be one? God is one, but we're also worshiping Jesus. Or even think about I mean, if you want to learn good Trinitarian theology, and you have it, Elizabeth, but your listeners, I mean, don't read a book, certainly don't read my dissertation, only my supervisor and my wife have read my (laughs) dissertation. So like, you don't want to read that. The best, the best Trinitarian literature in the Bible is John chapters 13 to 17. Jesus's upper room discourse where he's finishing his conversation with his disciples right before his death, burial and eventual resurrection. And he's telling them, uh, things like I, you know, I can't do anything except that which I see the Father doing, and the Father has sent me. But it's actually better that I go away because the Holy the Holy Spirit's going to come. <clears throat> He's the Paraclete. He's the Helper. He's actually going to be the one who guides you into truth. He doesn't speak on his own, but he speaks what he hears me and the Father hearing. So, what might be really helpful, I'm going to give maybe some big categories to think about for your listeners, and then maybe simplify it a little bit. Is we do want to say, okay, God eternally exists as one and three distinct persons. Uh, but this distinction isn't their godness. They're not distinguished in the sense of how much God is God the Father or how God-like is God the Son. They're 
all exactly the same in terms of the attributes that you're going to go through this year, things like omnipresence or omniscience or power or um, sovereignty that God, the father, son, and spirit share all of these in common, even in the son's incarnation. But what distinguishes them is their eternal relations to each other. And so God, the father, we would say he is eternally unbegotten. Uh, That can feel like strange language because begotten is like meant to be born from or to come from. So we're saying the father comes comes from nothing. Uh, He is somebody who, in his personhood, the early Latin theologians said he is the fountain of all divinity, the source or the wellspring of all divine life. That's That's the Father. The Son, on the other hand, is uh, uh, eternally un- unbegotten. So the, 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 the Father is the one who's never sent in the story of Scripture. The Son is sent. He's the one who, John three sixteen for God the Father so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. And so the Son is eternally unbegotten. But that, that sounds strange. Uh, because it's like, wait a second, you're telling me that the sun is sent eternally. There was a time where it never happened. So an African theologian, St. Augustine, uh, picks up John chapter, uh, yeah, John chapter five, where G- uh, Jesus says, the father granted me to have life in myself. And what Augustine picks up on there is it's not that the sun, there was never a time when the sun didn't have life and find it in himself. So the simplest, not quite the simplest, I'll make it simpler in a second. An, an easier way to say it is, there was never a time when the sun wasn't the sun. The sun never came into existence, but for eternity past, uh, he's uncreated. He he never came into being. He always existed. And then the, the Holy Spirit is the one who eternally proceeds, is the way theologians have talked about it, from God the Father and God the Son. And he is the one who is sent uh, by both the Father and the Son. That's what makes him distinct. Now, that sounds like really academic and really theological, and maybe people's eyes are rolling on their back of their head. So, And I get that. This took me like nine years to begin to get my head around. So let me even, let me even like, let's put the cookies on the bottom shelf. When we, if I could give you one word for each person, I would say, when you think of the Father, think of from uh, from the Father. He is the one who is always sending. All things come from Him. The Son and the Spirit never initiate any kind of divine activity. He is truly Father. Uh, and then when we think of Son, we can think of through. Uh, he is the one through whom God the Father accomplishes all things. The Father never finishes a divine act that He doesn't begin to work through his son. He is the mediator of all divine activities. So from, through, and applied by God the Holy Spirit. So God the Holy Spirit is the one who takes what God the Father begins, through whom God the Son works that activity, and the Holy Spirit is one who finishes it or completes it and brings it to fruition. So from, through, and apply. If we were talking about that as relates to salvation, we would say God the Father sent the son from salvation comes from the father and the son accomplishes it in his cross death burial and resurrection and then salvation continues because he then sends god the holy spirit to apply all the works of jesus and the love of the father to us yeah that was a lot i'm sorry (laughs) no i mean i asked you to talk about a lot and i appreciate those words at the end the from the through and the applied is that Mm -hmm. correct yeah. yeah, yeah. And there's some theologians use different ways. It's, it's good yeah. to think God the Father starts all divine activity, yeah. whether we're talking about creation, salvation, speech, 
uh, all of it, all of it begins with God the Father. It's all accomplished through God the Son. Like He is the one, He's the the divine mediator of the Father's activity. He's the Son. I can't do anything except that which I see my Father doing. Yeah. And nothing is finished by God the Father and the Son without the applying work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So when you, because you mentioned uh, a few key areas that I'd like for you to kind of to touch into study of creation, salvation, and sanctification. Yeah. And so, you know, I think the entire Godhead is present in all three of those actions. That's right. But do we see the work of one in a special way? Like I think of sanctification and the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. So can you speak to that, JT? Yeah. So some theologians will talk about like a specific work being maybe highlighted by a specific person more, um, but there is no act that doesn't have all three involved. So yeah. there's kind of this this tension here. So for example, let's just let's use creation for example. We might think, well, God the Father is the one is the one doing this. Or maybe we'd say God the Holy Spirit because he's hovering over the waters. Yeah. What does the Son have to do with this? Well we would say God the Father is the one who speaks a, and this is important, a logos or a word. Uh, he's the one who, Genesis 1, he, he is speaking creation to existence. Well, who's the speech of the Father? It's always the Son. John chapter 1, the logos in the beginning was the speech, the logos, same, same concept from Genesis chapter 1 or Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things came into existence, and through him all things are sustained in existence. So, so we can't just say it was God the Father, but it is God the Father who initiates. Then God the Son, who is the one who is kind of mediating this creation work, and God the Holy Spirit's the one who completes it as the Spirit who hovers over the water. But then, yeah, you're right, sanctification. I mean, even we get that word Holy Spirit or Spiritus Sanctus. Isn't, isn't that just the work of God the Holy Spirit? I think we would say, yeah, it's the Holy Spirit who is the one active in us. We Galatians chapter five. We want to walk in the fruit of the Spirit, not in the works of the flesh. So that that's true. But it's not like God the Father and God the Son are now in the heavens inactive. And, you know, they're taking a halftime time out, little break up there. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit's like, all right, my turn. I'm going in the game. I'll do this work of sanctification. Who, whose image are we being sanctified into? the image of the son he is the he is the he is the holy one of israel the holy one of god that we the whole by his spirit are being shaped and formed and refined into well who is he an image of the invisible god the father and so every single part of the christian life we're talking creation uh sanctification justification uh, revelations speak like not revelation and times like revelation like God's disclosure of Himself in Scripture or even in creation is an act of the Triune God. Yeah, like all the work of God in the world is a unified mission of the Trinity. Like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all on mission together. Whether it's in the work of creation, salvation, sanctification, or the other aspects of what they do to move forward their work of redemption and restoration in this world. It reminds me, what you said reminds me of a phrase I heard from one of my professors in the Trinity. We see unity without uniformity and difference without division. So in this oneness and threeness, there is this unified mission that's being accomplished, but distinctive ways in which each member of the Trinity accomplishes that mission, right? Like the Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. That's right. And the Father is not the Holy Spirit or the Son. They don't have to become the other in order to do their work. They show up in their distinctiveness to accomplish this unified mission. 
but the distinctiveness doesn't usurp the mission, right? Nobody shines brighter than the other. They all coexist together in their splendor and glory. And I think it goes without saying that finding unity, yeah, right, finding unity amongst our differences has been something that has been difficult for humans for much if not all of history, right? Like whether it's race, it could be race, gender, ethnicity, geography, education, socioeconomic levels, politics, right? The clothes we wear, the music we listen to, or some other aspect of difference. Mm -hmm. The question is how can we coexist as one without diminishing the differences in our divine design and situatedness? Yes. Because on one end, there's assimilation. And I've experienced this. It's the idea that who I am is better than who you are. So to be a part of this group, you need to become like me. On the other end, or maybe another category, there is this polarizing tribalism that we're seeing right now in the culture, is that your differences are so offensive to me that I'm going to separate myself from you, dehumanize you, and make you the villain for all that is bad in the world. And then there's this unique aspect of secularism that leads us to believe that our uniqueness needs to shine bright, even if it's a detriment to the rest of the group, that will be focused on and our uniqueness is what's most important and valuable to us. Mm -hmm. Now, some differences have lots of levels of complexity to them, like racism and injustice. Man, this is heavy and complex. And conversations about politics are complicated. But where can we get a vision for how to navigate these human realities, right? Because it's not like we can't lean into these things. Mm. And this is what I love about the, the, the phrase that my professor gave me this unity without uniformity, difference without division, that I think the Trinity gives us a vision of what the goal is and gives us grace to be able to chart a course to get there. Mm. If we are made in God's image, redeemed by Christ, by the power of the Spirit, and indwelt by the Spirit, and the goal for us is to reflect the character of God, and it's a goal that is not optional, but it doesn't mean that it's still not really hard, right? I think, honestly, if I'm honest, JT, I think it should humble us. Right. That no matter how hard, no matter how complicated for us as believers, this is always the goal. Oneness that makes room for the beauty of our differences is the goal, especially in the church. That's right. Not just in our local church, but the big C global church. We are all on the same mission. We are not enemies. We are brothers and sisters. And this is what we pray for. This is what we fight for. And our approach to navigating these differences has to have this element of unity and diversity in its purview. Again, it is not easy and the wounds run deep. But I believe, like when I think about this aspect of God being three in one, both a unity and diversity, our faith requires us to hold on to this commitment. Yeah. And I think the place we look is God. I mean, the yeah. thing that, like, he's the one who shows us how to do this. Like, yeah. one of the things I've been thinking about recently, Elizabeth, is none of the persons of the Trinity are ever like, look at me. Mm. They're always like, look at the other persons. Like, they're there to celebrate each other. God the Father's like, check out my son. He's amazing. He's like me. He's the image of the invisible God. And God the Son's like, you guys are going to do better when I, when, this, when I send the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes and he's like, yeah, I'm here, but I'm really just telling you what Jesus is saying uh, through scripture and through through revelation. I mean, it's just, it's this constant pointing towards the other that helps us to see the beautiful unity of the triune God. And I think the church, if we're the body of Christ, that's how we re represent the nature and character of God's unity and his diversity. That considering the interests of the other, 
above ourselves. That's right. Beautiful image. Beautiful image. JC, I want to, one, I want to ask you this real quick. What's your favorite book on the Trinity? Oh, it's got to be Michael. Well, there's, there's, I'll just say there's lots of good books. Can I give two? Can I give two books? You can, you can give two. You can okay, give I'll give two books. I'm going to give you a historical one that's like academic and pretty nerdy, but it's just a, a, Augustine wrote a book called On the Trinity, De Trinitate, and it's just, it's good. It's just so good. Now there are parts that are just super heavy. So like, if you're like, I, I'm not there yet, don't pick it up. Like just, just, you'll be fine. Get Michael Reeves book, Delighting in the Trinity. You can read this book in an afternoon, couple hours, short, maybe 150 pages or so. We've used it in the Institute, the space that Elizabeth and I had the opportunity to teach in together for a long time. And it's it's, it's been something we've used for eight or nine years now, and it's almost always the student's favorite. So, And I'm pretty sure I should have called Michael. Like, here's your like, Michael, I need I need some royalties here, bro. Like, I'm going <laughs> to be pumping your book for a decade. Like, just, just like send me a gift card to Chili's or something like that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> 90s a little bit more than Chili's for the amount yeah, that you right. have pushed that book. Right. But yeah, that's great. We'll have both of those uh, tagged for y'all in the show notes. I have one question before the last question, okay. um, because you are JT, the theologian, the academic. You are JT, the pastor. You are JT, the author. But you are also JT, who is walking with the Lord. Mm. And you think about your journey with Jesus. You think about your family, your kids, the oneness and threeness of God. And it can link back to this idea of diversity and unity that we just talked about. But is there kind of a story or a moment that you think of how, man, this is how this is how deeply impacted me and changed mm. the way I view God uh, or view myself uh, in light of God? But is there kind of a moment that you can think of or a story that you could share? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is a long story. I'm going to keep it very short mm-hmm. without, it's kind of, it's either an hour or a minute. So I'll, I'll try to do the minute version. <laughs> yeah. There was a season and you were around in my life at this time, Elizabeth, where I was struggling. It wasn't really a sin issue. It was just like a pattern of kind of doubt and disbelief. And I, I the word that I would have used for myself is I was wounded. Like I felt like, I felt like I was just a, just wounded. Uh, and I talked about it publicly at, at church and TVC and in the Institute space. And, you know, when we think about the Trinity, we can just think like, Perfection, perfection, perfection. That's true. God is perfect. But at the same time, within the Trinity, after Jesus's life, death, burial, resurrection comes what? His ascension. He he goes back in, up to the Father, uh, Acts chapter 1. And this is after I'd written a dissertation on the Trinity. I did, This just hadn't hit me yet. Is the wounded one is invited into divine life. The one with scars and with blood who'd been placed in a tomb is now accepted into the divine life. I read a, I read a, I was reading a book on the Ascension and it said, when we go to heaven, not only are we embraced by God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, we'll be embraced with the hug of a human wounded healer. And that just was like, for me. And it allowed me to say, okay, my wounds are actually safe in the divine life because there's one who has been wounded on my behalf, crushed for my iniquities, who is in the divine life right now. Like Jesus of Nazareth is participating in the divine life currently, and I'm in him. And that means my wounds are going to be healed in this divine Trinitarian life. And so it it was those moments where it ceased to be less kind of intellectual and academic for me. And I could take my greatest pains, wounds in life, sadness, tears, frustrations, anger, and say, I can, it, when I bring these into the divine life, it's not that I'll be shunned and it's not that I should be ashamed. It's actually, that's where they'll be healed. Oh, so beautiful. 
Thank you for sharing that, JT. Can you land the plane for us in the question that we always ask at the end, which is, in, in some sense, I feel like we've been talking about this the entire time, but how does the Trinity, right, the triune nature, the oneness and threeness, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how does that point us to the gospel? Yeah, I, I want to say t- just two things briefly. The first is, you know, I'd love for your your listeners to, to begin to think about this. God is the gospel. He is the good news. It's good news that he is who he is and therefore acts in accordance with who he is. He is Father, Son, and Spirit who sends, uh, accomplishes, and applies. And so we don't have a God who sends, we don't have a God who accomplishes, and we don't have a God who applies if God isn't Father, Son, and Spirit. So so God is the gospel, and we get to delight in him. That's, that's the book, Delighting in the Trinity. I'd also just highlight one other thing. It's not just that God saves, it's that God continues to sanctify and give us life. And that means maybe some of your listeners could even think about this. Do I fellowship with each person of the Godhead? Like, do I enjoy relationship with God? Like, I would imagine most of, most people think, I really relate to God the Father or God the Son or maybe God the Holy Spirit or maybe two of them, but three feels like a lot. Or maybe, you know, Tertullian, uh, an African theologian said, I, I tend to think of, sometimes I think about God as one. And as soon as I do that, I think about the threeness of God. As soon as I think about the threeness of God, I think about the oneness of God. I should invite your listeners to say, okay, how do I fellowship with God the Father today? And not God like a father. I mean, God the Father. It's not an analogy. He's Father. How do I fellowship with God the Son today, who's accomplished my salvation? How do I pray to Him and thank Him for His work on my behalf? How do I fellowship and walk in the power of the Holy Spirit who's in my life today and give Him honor and glory and worship? And so, because that's gospel too. It's not just that God acted in the past. It's that we fellowship with that God today. And since God is Father, Son, and Spirit, we can fellowship with Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Amen. God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, from whom comes life for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a life that saves. It's a life that restores both now right. and to eternity. And to me, there are certain things that we should be in awe of, uh, many things. And one of them is that God makes himself known to us. It's amazing. Uh, and we have the opportunity to know him uh, as much as he reveals himself to us. And y'all, that's what we're going to spend this entire season doing is taking one aspect, one attribute of the Godhead and talking about what it is and how it connects to our daily lives that we might know God more, love him more with our lives and show up for him as his people in this world. Mm-hmm. And it's a privilege uh, that we get to do that. And he invites us into that. And so thank you, JT, for getting that process started for us. What a gift. I'm so thankful for you, sister, as a conversation partner, as a friend, but most importantly, as a sister. I, I love these conversations with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you. Before ministry, I used to work as an accountant and used a 10-key calculator every day to do my work. I used it so much that I developed a muscle memory, right? I could have a whole conversation with you while using the calculator, not looking at it, but looking at you and still know when I missed a key. You and I have a muscle memory when it comes to God. We have deeply embedded ideas about God that we go to when the lights go out in our life. But the issue is if what we go to is true or not, will it give us hope or leave us in despair? Will it remind us that we are blessed or leave us trying to earn our salvation or the favor of God? Will it compel us to choose the way of holiness or keep us comfortable in our sin? My hope is that throughout this season, God will deepen your understanding of who he says he is 
so that you can know and love him more and live a life for his glory. To help you reflect on this and to reflect really on the entire episode, I want to leave you with this question. A.W. Tozer says, the most important thing about a person is what comes into their mind when they think about God. What comes to mind when you think about God? And where do you think you learned this idea? Thank you for listening to Starting Place. This podcast is designed to serve as an introduction, helping you understand and grow in your Christian faith. So if you're interested in learning more about today's topic or connecting with our guest, please check the show notes for more information. Also, we'd love to hear from you. So feel free to message us on Instagram or shoot us an email at podcast at the woodsoninstitute.org. And don't forget, hit that subscribe button and leave us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. It helps other people find the show and connect with us. Until next time, grace and peace, y'all.